0: Yeah, uh. yeah. Ch- t- changes on the way, Trust me, it was satisfying. the same. Uh. right yeah. down, right down, Right now, right now. Right now, Energy, enemies, Right jealousy. Yeah, yeah, Right yeah. well, now. T- changes now. Right now. Right Hi everyone, it's me, your host, Laura Kemp, and welcome back to a new episode of Changing the System, the podcast that shines a light on people that are changing outdated structures and ways of thinking. It's an era of resistance and new ideas, so it's a truly exciting time for new voices to be heard, so please hop on board and thank you for tuning in. Episode 5 on Changing Mindsets is with artist and writer Julia Beth Harris. She'll share a personal story with us and will take us on a journey from a township in South Africa to a life in Europe and all what that encompasses for her and others around her. It's about identity, living in different worlds, and about embodying change by just existing in the world. But just before we start, I want to make you aware of something called the Sustainable Fashion Gift Card the first gift card in the world that's affiliated with sustainable brands only. What's not to love? Also founder Nanette is a really cool entrepreneurial lady, so please check them out online, the sustainable fashion gift card. Now, without further ado, let's get into episode 5 of Changing the System, and we went for the title on Changing Mindsets. Ch- ch- the way. Trust me, it the uh, it's really good tea. It's good tea, right? Um, it's calming the senses. It says on the pack. I want to see it now. Oh, it's cool. The tea we're having is called Tension Tamer. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, it's so funny. Let's have more tea. Yes, and so. let's spill all the tea. Meet my guest, Julia Beth Harris. Artist and writer based in Amsterdam, but also one of my best friends. So to switch from friend mode into serious podcast mode, we tried some rituals like drinking tea and taking some deep breaths. Julia Beth, JB, is born and raised in South Africa, but has been gracing Amsterdam with her presence for about nine years now. She's a writer, artist and a poet. So you'll find her working on her art, riding her bike in great outfits, and she's also great at hosting parties. Often, when we talk, she leaves me thinking about it for days. She just sees great connections between things, and maybe that's because she's lived through different cultures and different systems, which is a perfect fit with the Changing the System podcast. So we decided to do an episode together to dig a bit deeper and use it as a platform. For example, I really want to know from her what it was like growing up in Mitchells Plain, a township about 30 kilometers from Cape Town and a segregated area which is a direct legacy from the apartheid regime. Mitchells Plain was built as recent as the 1970s and was used by the white ruler to forcefully house people they labeled as colored. So in this episode we'll talk about the aftermath of the apartheid in South Africa from her perspective the importance of education, her move to Europe, where we met, uh, post-colonial reparation, her views on activism, Black Lives Matter, and she'll share a poem with us. So we've got a lot of relevant stuff to cover. So don't go anywhere. The first question I asked JB is to give us a bit of an education about townships and the artificially created difference between Black townships and colored townships. Because I visited you in your town home and there was a separate color township Mm. that was created, right? There's black townships. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit about how that was created and and how Mm -hmm. that looked for you? Well, as part of the apartheid
1: regime, they built into law uh, something called the Group Areas Act, I believe. I stand under correction. But this basically gave the order that neighborhoods in in and around Cape Town should be separated or segregated by race. So there was lots of emphasis on like, you know, uh, colored people living in one area, black people living in one area, and white people living, of course, under the mountain by the ocean in the best part of the city.
0: So the Group Areas Act came into law in 1950, but was being implemented until as recently as the late 70s. And Mitchell's Plain was built in 1970. How would they make the distinction between black and colored? Were there any rules for that? Yeah, I mean,
1: there was bogus rules. Like, for example, uh, you know, the American civil rights movement will know the brown paper bag test. But in South Africa, we had the pencil test. So I didn't live through that, you know. I was born very close to um, freedom, you know, and, you know, the apartheid regime falling. But my parents' generation will have come experienced the pencil test where if they put a pencil in your hair and it sticks, then you're black. And if it falls through and you have sleek hair, then you're colored. Then you're colored. What silly things like that, you know, for the Indians, a different story. Just anything that they could do to create distinctions, they used. But also, I mean, there were also natural cultural lines that formed. Like, for example, a big difference between a black and a colored family is that a black family will have an indigenous African native tongue that they speak and 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 colored people because they didn't really have that uh, culture they were kind of a new people that formed out of the you know the slaves and the masters uh, sleeping together or the, the raping of the slaves um all we had as a main language was Afrikaans, which to be honest is also a uh, indigenous uh, African language, though it has Dutch roots. It's, you know after hundreds of years of development in Africa, it becomes its own distinct language which only exists in South Africa. So it's definitely a South African language and a lot of people identify with the speaking of this language. So that's one way we uh, uh, you can definitely tell a coloured family from a black family is usually that you know they have a a mixed race look. So a coloured family has the entire spectrum. Like the kids can come out any which way you know from the dark blackest black to the light to the whitest white with light eyes and straight hair and anything on the spectrum in between. That they speak Afrikaans. They usually eat uh, Malay inspired food because. uh, the yeah mm-hmm. the VOC they, the the Dutch colony they also uh, brought slaves from other colonies like Indonesia and that's where our Islamic um, Malaysia that's where our Islamic community comes from and they also are classified as coloured so to be coloured encompasses a lot and to call to label all that diversity and slap it with one little label um, really diminishes the specificity and of of each person's individual identity and you know I think therein lies also the tragedy uh, of uh yeah, tragedy but also you know a, the blessing of of, of being colored or well, the challenge of being colored is to find out what specifically where specifically your roots actually like. because colored uh, as a term describes one thing but it also leaves a lot of details out mm. so um yeah heritage is a is a big deal
0: so there is black townships and color townships and yeah. you said they were created to conquer and divide would those townships yeah, and to- look different are they mm-hmm. built differently how mm. um yeah how does it look then in mm. it's a great question because that's how they
1: made us uh they made the two groups hate and fear each other also, because if you were colored and therefore closer to white, because, you know, you had some white ancestors, the closer you were to white, the better treatment you had. So in the colored townships, they also designed that you had like actual brick houses. Maybe you don't have, uh, you know, electricity or necessarily running water when it was first established, but they had at least brick houses. So visually it looked better than... Uh, The black townships where you had um, aluminum iron shacks, you know, people didn't even have brick houses, you know, and visually like the perception and, uh, you know, with race and identity, perception is very important. The perception is that, you know, if you're black, you are the worst, if you're classified black, you are really the lowest of the low and the worst of the worst. And it also gave colored people in the middle, like, you know, the strange identity crisis where they started to hate the black part of themselves. And um, that, to to bring it back to your initial question, like that is what manifested in the family, that because of like internalized self-hate for the parts of us as coloreds, which is black, a violent language was used about blackness and within the house and also like, you know, using derogatory terms for black people, that was never really our idea, but came directly fed in from the white uh, regime. So for example, to make it a bit more concrete, like I grew up, my mother had three kids and uh, each kid has a different look, you know, each daughter has a different look. All beautiful, but the first Myrna she has brown skin but she has more of an Indian look and really um, not straight hair but like you know smooth long hair to her back you know and a really pointed nose. So this was still you know the skin is brown but because of the hair and the features it was still close to beauty. Then we had the second one she had a more like Latin look with spiral curls and she was kind of cappuccino and her beauty was also very much appreciated. Then I came <laughs> and I'm totally like on board for my beauty now. But when I was growing up, I was the one of my mom's children, which really, uh, the African, uh, no, West African features really came out the most. So I have quite a pronounced, nose, small, like, but flat nose and, you know, uh, larger lips, just odd, like archetypal African features, basically. And my hair was also much coarser. So I always used to walk around with large afro when I was little and large eyes and really dark skin. And in my, like, you know, a, a nickname that people use often for a, a girl that looked like me is kafiji. Um And this word kafa also has a, um, I mean, it's used as a term of endearment in that way. Like a lot of my uncles also called me kafachi, but like, you know, and they didn't mean it bad but the word kaffir is actually a very pain, a painful derogatory term that was flung at black people and it stems from which actually with that referred to a heathen or somebody who does not believe or mm-hmm. somebody who is uncouth or untrained or you know that needs to be tamed but in South Africa, it developed as you know a an ugly word that you described. It's our version of nigger, basically. So you know, this this type of words was used to describe me as some as a little kid that had African features. They meant it out of love, but because I associated that with blackness, um, I internalized um, a hate for those the features that aligned me with my blackness, actually, and with my Africanness, which is so mess- unnecessary. Mm-hmm. you're beautiful thank you my bae
0: (laughs) thank you Um, when did you come to realize uh, about the segregation and the system of south africa because as a young child i it's just reality you live that's true you get up every day that's right i suppose when
1: I loved it as as most children do, as you mentioned in uh, in yeah in in ignorance and ignorant bliss actually. Um, but the first time that I really noticed the differences was when we had to travel, of course, into town because when you get to the city centre, it's immediately different. Of course, you suddenly see white people. So um, that though, so trips into town for Christmas shopping or. Whatever my mom would have, will have needed to get in the city center um that would have been um that would have stood out because I would have seen white people around whereas we don't have those in the neighborhood and also um when I was how old was i I think I was about ten um I was sent to an international German school, so I was sent to one of these international schools in the city centre so I had to wake up really early and travel into school and that's where I really uh for the first time understood the impact of environment and access and uh luxury and different ways of life, and for the first time also um maybe not registered as a child inequality, but felt inequality just by what I saw around me and the differences between what me and the other black kids had and and yeah what the white kids had and didn't have, so yeah that was the first time
0: and you getting into that German school was quite extraordinary wasn't it how did you
1: it was. end up
0: there it was a strange thing to
1: be for it to be a little kid from Mitchell's Plain who could speak German I mean was um, it
0: a funded program from the German government or it
1: was bless there? did you have to apply for it um well I had to do an entrance exam hmm. so the way my family learned about it well the German school put adverts in our local newspapers. It was also some sensitivity from the, um, yeah, from the Germans at the school um, to the position of our country and the fact that there was an underserviced, uh, underprivileged uh, segment of society, so black and colored kids, who wouldn't have access to the luxuries of the quote unquote white world so they um subsidized they advertised in our newspaper uh, in the township and subsidized a couple of uh, children from our neighborhoods to have the to have access to this amazing school with a uh, yeah tremendous facility um which yeah bless them for it because i am still enjoying the fruits of that access it's great but
0: how many other kids in your street or town would also go to schools like this? How unique was this? Literally no one. Um, So
1: I was the only child from my sort of immediate neighborhood that went to the German school. There was also only so many, that's so many spots. But uh, Mitchell's Plain is a really large area. So the bus had multiple stops in the various neighborhoods of Mitchell's Plain. And so it was me, my cousin, and I think, Let's say maybe ten other ten other students from the area of Mitchell's Plain, who yeah signed up, who registered at the same time as me. So the bus picked oh. us all up, and uh, ten yeah, ten kids,
0: ten kids. So we're yeah. So it's late nineties, and what I find fascinating is that this mixed school with facilities has to come from a German initiative.
1: Yeah. Were there any
0: South African programs? that stimulated um kids from different townships and neighborhoods to go to class together not that i'm
1: aware of but uh i think no uh because otherwise i would have been aware of it if that facility was available uh it was the international it wasn't only the german school that mixed people uh it was there were also french international schools where you had this mix of expat uh, d- children from all different backgrounds so each nation has a um has a has characteristics as a nation and values national values and uh South Africa was a, a yeah a new democracy in a a and, a, and a, a new South Africa rainbow nation they called it that was still very much finding its feet and I don't think that they had gotten to that yet
0: and also fascinating that it Were there any Dutch schools that were doing the same as a German school? No. Look.
1: No Dutch schools. I think it's a very good idea, actually. But there would be some, I imagine, If yeah, I imagine that there would be some contention with the language of Dutch because, of course, we learned German.
0: Mm. But during the
1: apartheid times, a lot of black and colored people um, and the schools that were reserved for... um, for black and coloured people, it was called bantu education. As part of that syllabus that was especially <laughs> designed for people of colour, people's indigenous languages was had fallen by the wayside and were not included in the syllabus. But they were all forced to learn Afrikaans. Mm-hmm. So that's actually what sparked a lot of the riots oh. amongst the ab- amongst the youth and the uprisings is that they were rebelling against also having to learn the Afrikaans language of the oppressors, which yeah. was the language that stemmed from Dutch, of course. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, funny. I was
0: wondering about that because in Dutch schools, how, did you, we, we, yeah, how we, did
1: you experience it as a Dutch person coming to South Africa? Did some anybody frown upon you for being Dutch?
0: Uh, I don't think the, the black people and the colored people frowned upon me at all. I do think the white South Africans felt a bit of a special connection with me because I was from the <laughs> Netherlands, from yeah, their ancestors. It's true. That's um, true. I'm speaking, of course, from a colored perspective. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was also strange to see all these Dutch names on the yes, villas and the, yeah. the wine farms and our highways. The highways. So, yeah, for me, it was a bit painful um yeah. just not having learned the exact history of South Africa and Holland in school you know yeah and how um, instrumental it actually was yeah. to the
1: to the existence to the privileged existence that we now all lead here yeah as citizens
0: yeah exactly that and i think it's um it's a shame in south africa you see it
1: Yeah, there's no question about it. There's no question about it. Blacks in the kitchen, whites dining at
0: the table. mm, Still. Still. It's absolutely uh, crazy to see it like that. And to experience it. Also as a black woman in my own country.
1: But now with more means. So, I mean, if I go to South Africa, my euro stretches further. So I can be one of the people now having a seat at the table. Hey, Solange. <laughs> <laughs> having a seat at the table, but also, um, and, and paying for it. You know, I end up often being the only black in a white uh, space mm. where the only other black people are serving us. And that's also an, 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 an uncomfortable Experience. position yeah, for you mm. as well. But then you blend in, of course. Or as a white well, girl. Well, just as a white person. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's, it's really strange and painful. Yeah, um, second. From both sides, but more so if you're the minority. Oh my God, you just hear me. I said minority. Black people are not the minority in South Africa. It's <laughs> not actually even that's a minority. Funny <laughs> it's still interesting how we use American language, um, American race language. Yeah, of course. Well, it's the Africa. best documented. Yeah. That's why. Because the culture... You would recommend. For the Dutch to stay away for a bit. <laughs> well,
1: I think that I would recommend for them to, I, I wouldn't say stay away because I think something in the way of reparations would go a long way. And I don't just, and I don't just mean that as in cold, hard cash. I mean, <laughs> that, that that's not, that doesn't solve anything. But I mean, in terms of investment, um, really repairing the the damage yeah there's some damage you know that and, and and that's across all spheres also the emotional damage so i think like i don't know starting initiatives to up to, to uplift the, the the communities and the townships that are still suffering from the colonial from the apartheid ripples for example like in Mitchells Plain where that where i've just spent time recently again there are still so many hopeless young people who have no no recreation, no facilities, they're far away from the city center, so then they don't have the bus fare even to go into the city center. When they go to the city center they're not welcome because they their clothes aren't good. They're kind of mostly on drugs. They belong to gangs. There is no Nothing in the community on the ground for these kind of young people. So, of course, they fall into gangsterism mm-hmm. and escapism, escapism through drugs. Yeah. So I think a great initiative would be to put a boxing gym or something, some kind of gym mm-hmm. in the communities to build, to invest rather in those kind of initiatives. Start a sport that would be so cool if you could just start a commission of like sport activities for all the neighborhoods and channel all that aggression and hurt that people still feel into something positive and convert that energy into really investing mm. in people's lives and people's yeah. mental ability.
0: How's it? Ja,
1: Good. Okay. Yeah, ja, now we're in, in gaining some momentum. Yeah, okay. So momentum. <laughs> our voices are racing.
0: Yeah. Gosh, we're not even in Holland yet in this story. <laughs> like we're still in south africa (laughs) so we're making a big jump in time jb is now in her early to mid 20s working in cape town in the city center as a layout artist for a magazine I never knew this about you. Oh, really? No. I didn't get there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I had a corporate job for a while. I had like years laying out magazines. I had to wear corporate outfits and I lived for it. I wore heels and like high waisted skirts and pants and I had my hair in like bangs and really straight until here all the time. It was a great time. (laughs) (laughs) That was wonderful. I really enjoyed that. But the job I hated. The job was, it didn't actually give you that much creative freedom. So you were basically uh, filling in a grid a template. Yeah, you were getting restless. I was getting restless. I was 24. I mean, can you imagine? Um, and I knew there was more also. So I had to find a way to, uh, to extricate myself from that situation. Um, I decided to make a radical change um, and apply to... Um, actually, initially, I applied to study English... Uh, to teach English in South Korea. What? I know. (laughs) My sense of adventure was high. (laughs) That didn't work out at the last minute. And um, I'd already quit my job. So I ended up being in a situation. (laughs) I found myself straight in the middle of life, (laughs) Um, having no job and like all this time and um, also no relationship. And I just had six months of kind of trying to find something else. And uh, I was even having a moment where I was uh, working for a friend of mine who was in marketing and I um, was handing out flyers on oh. the streets. Crop like prop girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was doing, I was trying some things. And while I was handing out flyers on the streets of Cape Town, I walked past this agency that was advertising, take your gap year. I was like, oh, well, this might be something for me. It's... So then I went into their offices and they said, well, we have three options. You can either um, go to Israel for six months and work in relief, like they had some kind of relief program. There was something going on, or probably always something going mm. on in Israel mm. uh, that didn't really appeal to me. Or you can be an au pair either in the U.S. or the Netherlands. These were the three options that they had. So...
0: Random. Random! I know, those are my options suddenly (laughs) in life. And needless to say, she chose the Dutch option. Uh, JB had a face, a working period, so to speak, as an au pair with a family in the East. And after that, she moved to Amsterdam, where she's lived ever since. And that will be the perspective from the rest of our conversation. But what can you bring to the Western world, to Holland from South Africa, because you have been a critical observer as well of
1: the mm. world here.
0: Um, is there anything that you... I think,
1: yeah, I, th- I think just by being here and um, living, living as a very much African example, living as a nuanced story and just having regular Dutch people bear witness to my existence as somebody that is beyond a stereotype, I think that's already quite powerful. And how have you experienced the Black Lives Matter movement last year? I think the difference now has been that everybody was less distracted. And um, yeah, it coincided with a moment where people's eyeballs were like the only thing that people could experience was looking at their screens or what's happening in the world. You know, the eyeballs were all focused on one stage. And on that stage, George Floyd was murdered. And, you know, that was a horrible, um, but powerful catalyst for greater awareness. And also at a time where people were In their feelings anyway, like all people, like, you know, all people of color, like all people of all colors or black, white, Mm -hmm. everyone, the whole world was having the same moment in the same state of mind. And I think that's the thing that allowed more voices to um, jump on board and... That there also a lot of um, outspoken. uh, There was also a lot of outspoken millennials with a lot of unchanneled energy, and you know a whole channel, Instagram channel of their own that they had couldn't be posting. uh, You know nights out with. Um, Instead, there was these these movements like you know Black Lives Matter, and um, suddenly became trendy, and to, uh, to put a black square on your Instagram and to you know really be in the moment with the movement and ironically the fact that white voices jumped on board gave it it's gave it the traction that it is now um not of not enjoying but gave it relevance and that in itself is a, was something was a massive macro aggression actually not a micro aggression it was uh, aggressive to as brown person see how um yeah, black voices don't actually matter because only now when, you know, white voices are involved and also saying something about it and el- and showing empathy, actually, which is often the thing that is missing because logically people can't relate. You're standing outside the pool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was a bit, a, a, a massive macro aggra- aggression to see that, oh, now it matters. But then, as brown person, you have to also very quickly get over that and say, "Yes, compadre, please, you know, join us." <laughs> you know, as long as the message gets out there that, uh, and 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 maximum awareness and um, change in the minds of people is uh, affected. I'm. I think that's a very loving approach. Like, and there's a lot of people firebrands who would disagree with that approach of saying, yes, troops, because there was, I also heard of a lot of uh, things where people were like, get off the stage, go to the back, all white people, blah, blah. That doesn't serve anyone, you know, fighting fire with fire. um, You can only, you can only, yeah, you can only calm a fire with water. That translates to love. You can only welcome, you know, if you're feeling resistance, you can only surrender and open. There's no other um, solution to why the white voice is also needed, and especially the white young voice, so that other people can, other people who are culturally white can relate, because the problem is a lack in empathy, because no one can relate. But if it's your grandchild saying, hey, Black Lives Matter, or if it's your sister, or if it's your aunt, or if it's a a young mother in the neighborhood that's saying, imagining for the first time, hey, if my son was killed on the streets, I would also be looting, you know. Then if, if that's a family member, now suddenly it's personal. And I think that's what needed to happen. It needed to uh, become personal in order for people to be able to relate and feel empathy about it. So, yes, of course, you get over that initial uh, echo of, again, you know, being devalued. And then you're like, okay, cool. Now roll up your sleeves. Finally, let's, uh, let's get to, let's get to it, you Mm -hmm. know, and uh, affect lasting change. I think that the change that the most, that the battleground is in the minds and in the hearts of people. I think that's where the fight is. And that, uh, uh, of course, you need some practical checks and, and, you know, you need some things like, okay, like, like, for example, what uh, our friend Chada was doing. So, it's first, so it's first in the mind where change happens, and then it goes to the body through your hands or through your voice, you know. And in, to use our friend Chada as an example, he used what he could, you know, that was he affected
0: change in his circle. Okay, so maybe I should clarify here. Our good friend Chada is a designer and he made a list of black photographers and black image makers to present to the mainstream media and newspapers to show, hey, they're out here. Why aren't you using them?
1: And then it did actually happen that people were confronted with this list of legit black creatives to actually um be behind the lens and to finally um appreciate black work instead of just always being inspired by black people and like you know using it using an it excavating yeah. mining the the black identity and putting that on the label but then behind the maker and the person who earns is always still in the white pocket. There's nothing wrong with white people earning money. Like, that's not the issue, obviously. Everybody needs to be namaste and okay. But, you know, it's just that it hasn't been that way for black people. And there is, by and large, generalizing also, but by and large, um, there is an equity issue, you know, where oftentimes you are the inspiration, but you do not get to share in the freedoms that that, inspiration pays off you don't get to share in the payoff Mm -hmm. you don't own anything and that's very insidious and an echo that i'm so tired of Hmm. riled up
0: (laughs) so at this point our conversation has come to the subject of different forms of activism and how you choose the one that feels right for you
1: But I also think any brown person who tries to achieve anything, um, when you get to the arena where achievement is expected, you realize that the environment turns you into first and foremost an activist, whatever plans you had, because you find yourself, oh, this is first, first things first on the agenda is activist. First I must make space for myself and then I can start to um, uh, work on what I'm actually here to do, like become a lawyer or become an artist or become a whatever. First, I have to get people to accept that I'm in the space, to align me with uh, mm-hmm. success, especially if you're trying to really uh, uh, succeed and progress, you know, because whiteness is aligned with success, you know, with economic success. That is the standard. That's the image, the perception of mm-hmm. what success looks like. And it has been, you know, put into our minds over generations. And so, therefore, to counter that, when you come and you're the opposite of that picture, you know, uh, in the minds of people, whether they are aware of it themselves or not, um, you first have to make space for yourself and success in the minds of the environment around you. So, especially for me as, uh, you know, really living in the Netherlands, you know, as I'm often the only brown person in a room. And, uh, you know, so you have to, I have to make space for myself. That also comes with some advantages, you know. Yeah, it's not like it's only, like it only holds me back. You know, you can also use it as fuel. But uh, to really be uh, taken serious, there is some activism that has to happen. So for my particular path... Um, as artist or um, as as a writer first and foremost which I've always been um is to use my voice by you know saying yes to things like this talking about my experience um showing myself also which I find really difficult especially in the social media arena like you know I'm noticing that um yeah, I have a, resp- a responsibility to share, actually, my, my work and my observations and my point of view. So writing comes in very handy for this. And in every poem, it's present, you know, and um, not that I necessarily always talk about blackness. I don't want to only talk about that like this. So I also like talk about life and love. Um but just the fact, and I think I touched on this the last time we spoke also, just the fact that I'm walking around being so much more than just black is already activism, you know, um, just walking around, not being a stereotype, and aligning myself for me with success and seeing myself in my mind, because like we said, that's where the battleground is as excellent, as successful, as someone with agency as autonomous like fighting the battle in my own mind to align myself with success i think that is already quite revolutionary Mm -hmm. to uh, move through the world like that as someone in a brown body
0: that's beautiful Uh so that was episode five of changing the System. Thank you so much for listening to JB's story on here. To me, this interview really opened up my mind about South Africa's reality and JB's evolving experience here in Europe. Compared to other episodes that were more topic or theme-based, this one was more personal. Changing the system should happen structurally, but listening to people close to you is so important to achieve that too. Maybe there are voices and stories of friends in your own environment that you can listen to more and will change your mindset. For me, I think that might be my number one resolution for 2021 and a finisher for season one of this podcast. Now, please stick around as JB will be sharing a beautiful poem with us. You can find more Changing the System on any podcast platform and please subscribe or check out Instagram. JB's Insta is juliabeth.harris, double R. And she just finished her brand new website, juliabethharris.com. Now, here she is, the lady herself, reading her poem, Alone Together.
1: So it did have a working title of called Seemingly Unseen, and it was, yeah, me processing through having a narrow point of view of a painful experience. So what I learned basically through what I processed through writing this poem was that present in each moment is everything. So if it's a painful moment, if you expand your view, if you have the calm and consciousness to expand your view on the moment then you will find that there's so much more than just the pain there's also a triumph there's also strength there's also joy so there's many things present in each moment it's just you have to be conscious to see it all and uh, it helped me process a moment of pain and see it for what it is, which was everything, instead of just one thing. I chose to call it Alone Together instead of Seemingly Unseen, and it reads as follows. Many years later, as you hover in the door between here and after, you'll remember how it was in that sunlit room with hundreds of unseen generations gathered around your mother's bed as her spirit began to lift from her body. Notice how it seemed like she was alone. Notice how the light streamed in, crowding the room with stillness, while thousands of dust particles swirled in a slant of sun, surging upwards as if to say, Come now, come. It may seem like strongholds have fallen. It may seem like defenses have crumbled. But look closer. Open your mind's eye wide. Unfix from fear and perceive what it hides. Like the trembling soldier's sword with two sides. The blade cutting deep. So from the lion's carcass... Honey May seep. A thousand tongues speak, and a thousand truths, like twilight, fall on deaf ears and blinded eyes, ob dürve in blinde ur, ob dürve in blinde ochen, auf tauben ohren und blinden augen. In glebe es Cunyenameshlo, angabonio. Notice how the ear attunes to parallel frequencies. Notice as pupils dilate to let in more than was known before. You curl your fingers over the doorframe and lean in to the sun-soaked gloom. Moments before you pass through, you'll remember what Mama always said. Be observant. And you see her now, hurried light spilling onto the kitchen table, where her hands, luminous with sunflower oil, knead dough for bread. Flower particles rise up into the air and spread. Some settle on her yellow apron. Some settle on your nose, always in her business. Then the wind comes, barreling through your chest, lifting your arms, taking your breath. You join it on its sweeping through the cosmos. Come now, come, it seems to say, and your spirit leaps. Notice how you're not on your own. Notice how the golden threads of memory all join together and no spirit ever soars alone.